0: And we as a nation don't talk enough about this. It's like women don't eat enough protein. They eat too many of the wrong types of carbs and too many of the wrong types of fats. Fasting is a type of beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time, but that doesn't mean it's the right strategy for everyone.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to Superwoman Wellness. I'm Dr. Taz. I've made it my mission throughout my career in integrative medicine to support women in restoring their health using a blend of Eastern medical wisdom with modern science. In this show, I will guide you through different practices to find your power type and fully embody the healthiest and most passionate version of you. I'm here for you, and I can't wait to get started. This is a Soulfire production. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Superwoman Wellness, where you know we're determined to bring you back to your superpower self. I'm really excited about this next guest and this next topic. I feel like we can't stop talking about intermittent fasting. So joining me today is Cynthia Thurlow. She's a nurse practitioner, CEO, and founder of Everyday Wellness Project and an international speaker with over 10 million views for her second TEDx talk. Intermittent fasting, transformational technique. And with over 20 years of experience in health and wellness, she's a globally recognized expert in intermittent fasting and nutritional health and has been featured on ABC, Fox 5, KTLA, CW, and The Megan Kelly Show. She hosts the Everyday Wellness Podcast, which is considered one of 21 podcasts to expand your mind in 2021 by Business Insider. Welcome to the show, Cynthia. We're excited to have you here. Are you going to clear up all the confusion for us? About intermittent fasting and women's health, I feel like we see a different issue or a different study come up over and over again. Tell us how you got into this and and what your thoughts are.
0: Well, thank you for that warm welcome. You know, sometimes when I have those long intros that my team sends over, I kind of cringe because I think to myself, I'm like, gosh, it's just a lot of stuff. But what it really comes down to is I became interested in intermittent fasting when in my early 40s I hit the wall of perimenopause. I was doing all the wrong things. I worked for a very busy cardiology practice. I had two young kids. My husband did a ton of travel. And as you probably know, women in, you know, perimenopause and beyond have to do things a little differently. So intermittent fasting was something that I started out of curiosity and I felt so much better so quickly that it, it literally bled into everything I was doing, Mm. not just personally, but professionally. And that's really how it started, really as the end of one, and then realizing that it was a really profoundly impactful strategy that so many of us could do. And I grew up Roman Catholic. And so, you know, we were supposed to fast on high holy days. That was part of our religion. Right. So right. I think for a lot of people that think that this is a new or novel or it's trending, I just remind them it's actually not. It's, it's very aligned with ancestral health perspectives and very unaligned with our kind of traditional Mindset around meal timing and mini meals and snacks and kind of that kind of as I think of it the very traditional standard American diet regime that
1: is certainly not doing us any benefits. It's so funny because uh, our family's Muslim and you know Ramadan is all about fasting, right? So, um, so it is interesting how so many of these religious traditions included fasting as a form of purification, not just spiritually, but physically too, you know, so you're right. It's been around for a really long time and um, it's interesting to see it come around in all its different forms, you know, now intermittent fasting, as you see the science, what does the science say? Let's go to that for just a second. Cause I know there's some great studies around it. But then just as soon as a lot of that information came out, there were some studies saying it's really not good for women's health. So kind of paint the science picture for us for just a moment.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to understand that men and women have to fast differently. And a lot of the research that's been done as it pertains to women has been done on lab animals. And last time I checked, we are not rodents. We have a very different gestational cycle. A lot of the the research has been done on on obese menopausal women and also men. And so- Mm -hmm. You know, my hope and my endeavor is to ensure that we are doing more research in the area of younger, fertile women, obviously being very mindful of their follicular and luteal phases. But when we're really looking at the research and we really dive deep into the benefits, there is no question that... We are going to see an upregulation in autophagy, which is this waste and recycling process in the body, which I think is one of the coolest aspects of intermittent fasting that many people don't even focus on. So many people are focused on the aesthetics. Yes, you can lose weight. Yes, right. you can change body composition. But you start looking at biophysical markers, improvement in fasting insulin, fasting glucose, triglycerides, HDL, hypertension. Um, you know, waist circumference, so the metabolic syndrome that we're seeing, so much improvement in inflammation and oxidative stress because we're getting this mitophagy, autophagy that's going on. Um, You know, some of the most interesting research uh, to me is really looking at brain health and cognitive disorders and the reduction in risk for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and then also the reduction in um, certain types of cancers and even really good research on keeping women in remission after breast cancer, which... I think probably almost every woman that's out there, there's a concern about breast cancer. And so Mm -hmm. I have women on my team that are breast cancer survivors and they fast because they know that the research is suggesting and certainly supporting that fasting is a really helpful and beneficial uh, strategy to utilize, you know, post-treatment. So again, the biggest issue right now, I think is the fact that there's not enough research done on human women. Uh, that which has been done has been done predominantly on, you know, yeast cells, it's right. uh, been done on rodents and then also men and, and obese menopausal women. But I, I do hope over time that, that our um, menstrual cycles are not looked at as an inconvenience in research, but it's something that they can embrace. Oh, it's
1: such a g- great point. Cause I think that is how it's looked at that. You can't standardize anything because we're, <laughs> we're fluctuating all the time, but we are going to always fluctuate all the time. And I do think for everyone listening and watching the research is saying yes to intermittent fasting. If you are menopausal and obese, it seems to work for those women. It works for men. It seems to work for men pretty well. It doesn't, the research is saying currently, maybe not necessarily the best idea for younger women or even perimenopausal women that haven't completely lost their cycle. So let's break down the right way to fast and what that chemistry is. And I think the foundation that we can lay for everyone listening, then they're probably tired of me saying this, but the foundation we can lay is that it's blood sugar and insulin regulation and inflammation that continue to be the repetitive themes for all women, 13 to 70, I would say even above. And those are the things we're seeing over and over again. How does intermittent fasting come along, insert itself into this very common public health issue and become a solution when we're talking about women and women's health? I think it really
0: starts with the lack of meal frequency. So I am sure I'm not sure how old you are, but when I was training in the 1990s, we were telling our patients, we want to stoke our metabolism. We want to have right. three meals a day and snacks. Right. So yeah. when all of a sudden you are removing the snacking, you are restructuring your macros, so your protein, fat, and carbohydrates, you are going to allow your body to actually utilize stored food or store, whether it's stored as glycogen or stored as, Fat, you're going to be able to get to a point where utilizing stored fat as an energy source. And so when we're looking at insulin utilization, we understand that when insulin levels are low, we have the ability to go in and tap into these fat stores as a resource point. And, you know, one of the really cool things when we're looking at specific types of fatty acids or ketones that they can cross the blood brain barrier. So we start looking at a reduction in inflammation. We start looking at lowered insulin levels, which are going to improve the metabolic Um, machinery of our bodies. You know, people are not going to have energy slumps. They're not going to get sleepy after meals. They are going to learn how to properly structure their macros, you know, protein, fat, and carbohydrates, dependent on where they are in their menstrual cycle, but also dependent on the frequency of fasting that they're doing. You alluded to the fact, which I think is really important. Women under the age of 35 that are still at their peak fertile years, especially lean Smaller women um, should not be fasting every day. I really do encourage women to lean into their follicular cycle. Um, you know, certainly women that are PCOS, you know, polycystic ovarian yeah. syndrome, um, or are obese. Uh, and and one thing that's important to to note is that 25% of women with PCOS are thin. There's a thin phenotype, yep. so you don't have to be obese to have PCOS. And so really explaining to people that a lot of the chronic diseases that we're seeing, even in women, are related to uh, insulin resistance. So really looking at that specific population and saying, we wanna be most protective of your fertility. Even if you choose not to have children at that point in your life or ever, um, your body is acutely sensitive to the cues that we take in from the environment and from food. So follicular phase from the day we start bleeding to right before ovulation, that is when we are in the position where we can fast may not be every day for a woman at that stage of life, but that is the time you can push your workouts. You can have a lower carb ketogenic diet. Um, Certainly very important to understand that that is very different because that's when estrogen predominates. We're more insulin sensitive after ovulation. Women are, you know, they have more fluctuations in progesterone, and this is a very different type of hormone. We tend to be a little more insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. If a woman is in a position where they're still trying to lose weight and still at peak fertile years, I completely tell people to back off of fasting the week before their menstrual cycle. Very important to understand. So, that's one specific subsect, but really understanding that insulin resistance is a byproduct of meal frequency, meal choices. So, a lot of that can be improved upon by not eating as frequently. I'm not saying not to eat, right? Making better food choices. And we as a nation don't talk enough about this. It's like women don't eat enough protein, they eat too many of the wrong types of carbs and too many of the wrong types of fats. And then perimenopause this you know 10 to 15 year process with so 35 to 50 when women are going through reverse puberty that's the easiest way to explain it do i think that women at that stage of life can embrace intermittent fasting yes but the caveats are this they have to be more mindful of their sleep quality they have to be more um, more focused on anti-inflammatory nutrition, stress management, the right types of exercise. A woman at forty seven cannot exercise the way she did at twenty seven, mm-hmm. and a lot of it's you know my kind of mitigating a lot of these hormonal changes that are happening in our bodies, especially with this loss of progesterone, or we're having petering amounts of progesterone, we're having anovulatory cycles, we have relative estrogen dominance, our bodies don't handle stress as readily as it did when we were younger. And so that can be, I call it the, you know, the reverse puberty years. There are women that can absolutely uh, embrace intermittent fasting at that life stage. However, if they lose their menstrual cycle, if they suddenly can't sleep at night, if they feel poorly, they lose energy, that could be a sign that it's too much stress for the body. And I'm sure your listeners are super savvy about the concept of hormesis, but fasting is a type of beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. But that doesn't mean it's the right strategy for everyone. And so I love that you're creating that distinction. And then menopause, we don't have as much hormonal flux week to week, day to day. And so for a lot of menopausal women, it can become a pretty impactful strategy, provided all those other lifestyle pieces that I mentioned earlier are also dialed in. But what we're talking about consistently when we're looking at women um, in you know, teen years, young adults, older adults, the key theme is it all starts with food. And meal frequency is a huge component related to that. It's interesting. I was reading a research article the other day and was talking about insulin resistance starts in our muscles. Mm -hmm. So I always feel that it's really important to make sure people understand, irrespective of what life stage you are in, not only is it related to nutrition, but you have to maintain and build muscle because after the age of 40, we start losing it. I always say lose, it's not a question of if, but when, but sarcopenia, which is this muscle loss of aging becomes even more important. and so. That kind of ties in with that as well. The protein macros and making sure you're getting enough protein in during your feeding window. And if you're not, you may need to
1: change up the amount of hours that you're doing it. I think that's all such important information, but just breaking it down real quickly for everyone listening. So days one through 14, if you're menstruating and still at that stage, it's okay to fast. And we'll define what that means in just a minute. Um, when you hit sort of post ovulation, so days 15 through 28, assuming you have a 28 day cycle, that's where it's questionable because progesterone. And the sort of instability of progesterone creates a lot of uh, blood sugar fluctuation. It also creates a lot of sleep fluctuation and underneath that conversation with stress and lifestyle and all that other stuff. If you're in what we have been calling adrenal fatigue, right? Where you're just crashed out, that's also not a great time to begin intermittent fasting because we don't need additional stress to the body. So that's kind of what I got out of it and what I've been practicing as well is most of that in alignment kind of with what you're saying. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you bring
0: up a good point that not every woman has this perfect pristine 28 or 30 day cycle. And so there are strategies I talk about in the book for people that don't have regular cycles, but yes, estrogen is our insulin sensitizing hormone and progesterone is the opposite. And you're right, as you get closer and closer to menstruation, as you're getting last, you know, 21, today's 28, 21 through ah. 28, um, this is one of those faltering progesterone levels It may impact GABA, can impact sleep, anxiety and depression may get exacerbated. Uh, you may not feel quite as fantastic as you would otherwise would, but this is a time we start tweaking macros and understanding that this is sometimes where those cravings that we get right before a menstrual cycle are really our body's way of ensuring that we're changing and adjusting our macros at that time.
1: Yeah. And it's so tricky because we are these cyclical creatures. So again, dialing into your hormone situation, I think is so important. And that's why I keep ringing that bell. You've got to know where you are. You've got to know what's normal for you. And you've kind of got to manage those six or seven hormones that we keep talking about over and over again. All right. Now intermittent fasting itself, let's, you know, there's the hormone world and there's adrenal fatigue and there's thyroid and there's all that stuff, but straight talking intermittent fasting. I have heard and seen everything. 24 hours, 18 hours, 16 hours, 14 hours, 12 hours. What is the right way to intermittent fast? And how would you define it?
0: Well, I would define it as it is eating less often. It is really that simple. And when people are new to intermittent fasting, if you are a standard American diet eating couch potato, you are going to start fasting very differently. So the way that I look at when I'm peeling back layers, if someone has been eating three meals a day and snacks in between and is physically sedentary, we first pull the bandaid off. We take away the snacks because okay. no one should be eating snacks. You know, that's not benefiting us. It's not benefiting our insulin and, and glucose regulation. And so explaining to people that we are going to learn how to structure our macros and macros are taught our macronutrients. So protein, fat, and carbohydrates. So the very first thing we're going to do is we are going to restructure focused on protein non-starchy vegetables if your protein has a healthy fat like if you have a ribeye or a salmon you don't need to add more fat to your meal right. and really looking strategically because that protein is going to keep you satiated it's going to help with muscle protein synthesis very very important and i find when people hit the right amount of protein they don't get hungry in between meals so that's kind of step one and two and then it's going from dinner at night until breakfast the next day. And so that can be frightening. You know, people think they're going to starve, they're going to get hypoglycemic, they're going to feel poorly. And I just remind them we really are starting with a 12 to 13 hour digestive rest. And from there we kind of determine how much leeway someone has. Some people go from 12 or 13 hours to 15 to 16 fairly easily. I like most of my female patients to work up to 16 hours if they are able to. That may take four to six weeks for some people, depending on how carbohydrate dependent they are. And I always like to remind people we're all Mm bio-individuals. So if you're watching this and saying, you know, I've tried to do fasting and, you know, my friend was able to fast 18 hours effortlessly, and I could barely get to 14. My first question is where are you in your menstrual cycle? What are your macros like? Because those two things can really impact your success. So when I look at intermittent fasting, a 16, eight, so 16 hours fast with an eight hour feeding window is a good ideal to work towards. Mm -hmm. And as I stated earlier, women in the follicular phase can really push that provided they're slowly working up to it but also not apologizing for our physiology. Unfortunately, I think that's one of the things about intermittent fasting that, you know, it's the inconvenience of having a menstrual cycle, but it really, that's our superpower. So that's a good starting point. And once someone has mastered the basics, once they are fat adapted, meaning their body can utilize both carbohydrates and fats as a fuel substrate, and that's important, then they can go on to longer fast, but there's the law of diminishing returns. There are people who think, you know, I'm lean, I'm fit, I want to fast for three days. And I always say, you know, there, there's not a lot of good research to suggest that is going to be beneficial. In fact, the law of diminishing returns suggests that you will actually lose some muscle mass. But if you are obese, 50 pounds, you need to lose 30 pounds, you have plenty of fuel around, you can do some of those longer fasts once you've mastered the basics. And I think that's an important distinction. And certainly that's why, you know, your patients work with you and, you my people work with me so that we can carefully guide them
1: into determining what the right strategy is for them to utilize. Such important information. And do you have guidelines on what those macros should look like? Like if you're doing a 16 hour, like how many, I mean, some of you guys like grams, some of you don't I actually like them, but how many grams of protein, how many grams of carbs or fat? Like if somebody wanted to to track that, what would you suggest?
0: Well, I think the one thing I have learned is that we grossly under eat protein women in general. I remember I talked about sarcopenia, muscle mm-hmm. loss with aging that it, it's not a question of if, but when, so I encourage people to aim for hundred grams a day. Now there, there are probably people wow. saying, oh my gosh, I don't know how I could get to that. I'm eating 40 eat more. Like, so maybe you're having four ounces of protein with your meal aim for six, slowly work your way up. I didn't start off eating 50 or 60 grams of protein with my meals. I've been doing this for a while. I can do that, and I know exactly how I feel after I eat. I am completely satiated. I have no issues with wanting to go snacking or doing anything else. So, starting with protein, hundred grams a day. But you know the, the US RDA is is terrible. It's like mm-hmm. zero point eight. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible. So it's grossly under underestimates what we want. Um, if you if you've ever um, if you're familiarized with Dr. Gabrielle Lyons' work, she talks yeah, about one I gram per pound of ideal body weight mm-hmm. that freaks people out. So I say aim for a hundred, like that's a good starting point. Like slowly nah. work your way up as it pertains to carbohydrates. I think it really depends on how much weight someone is looking to lose. If you are hundred pounds overweight, guess what? You really do need to carbohydrate restrict the average American consumes 200 to 300 grams a day. And for most people, it is not from, uh, you know, low glycemic fruit and non-starchy vegetables. It is from processed Bread, pasta, rice, et cetera. So you really have to get real with yourself. And I'm talking about total carbs. I want under 100 grams.
1: Mm. For some
0: people, they need to be less. They need to be under 50 or under 75. But under 100 grams for a lot of people is a big stretch. Now, when it comes to discretionary healthy fats like avocado, coconut oil, MCT oil, I do encourage women to at least be cognizant of portion sizes because some people don't digest their fats well. I do much better with leaner meat and some plant-based fats. That's just my body. I have other people who can eat a big fat ribeye and they do just fine. Hmm. So I think a little bit of experimentation is key, but when you are measuring, whether it's macadamia nuts, avocado, um, coconut oil, MCT oil, lard, duck fat, whatever it is that you that you like, at least initially I would start measuring portions because we know that fats are much more nutrient dense than protein or carbohydrates. So you don't need to have two avocados a day. You don't need to have half a bag of macadamia nuts as much yeah. as I know they're delicious. And so really starting with hundred grams of protein, getting under a hundred grams of carbohydrates, which for people blows their mind. I'm talking total carbs, not net net is cheating. Yeah, um, is a really good, like first rung of the ladder to really work towards, And then I find like, once people realize like hundred grams of carbs is not no carbs, then we can, you know, kind of tailor it down. I try to get people
1: to under 75. So let's, uh, let's give folks some visuals, um, hundred grams of protein. How would we get that in if we're only getting in two meals a day? What have to have Hmm. substantial
0: protein sources. So for me, I mean, today I had two bison burgers, so. Almost 10 ounces of protein in a stretch, but an 8 ounce steak is going to get you 50, 60 grams easily. Now, did I start off with that amount? Absolutely not. I've slowly worked my way up. Um, For a lot of people, it can be, you know, 30 grams from having a large chicken breast, or they can get, you know, a nice piece of salmon or some tuna. Um, And for some people, they want to utilize a scale, you know, to kind of be Mm. to get honest with themselves so they can eyeball those protein choices. I'm not opposed to that at all, because for a lot of us, we've been under eating protein for such a long period of time. I'll give you an example. My husband today, I have teenage boys, so they mm-hmm. eat everything and anything. And my yeah. husband had tuna fish. He had two cans of tuna fish. That was 40 grams of protein. And he you know, easily ate that. So don't be afraid if you are under eating protein, don't be afraid of like, oh my gosh, there's no way I could finish a can of tuna. Okay. Slowly work up to that. But when you take the junk out, when you're not filling it up with bread and pasta and rice, All of a sudden you do have room for high quality protein intake and maybe it's tracking like chronometer is an app that I, I like, and I recommend track on your macro tracker so that, you know, what you're eating, like, what are you deficient? Are you really struggling with getting your protein in maybe have some bone broth? Maybe you can have a high quality. If you tolerate dairy, there are high quality. And I am very picky about ingredients, Um, I don't like a lot of junky fillers. I don't like, I don't like any artificial sweeteners. So I encourage people, if you're going to choose to have a protein shake, make sure it is very limited ingredient list. And it's not something that's replacing a real meal. If you're, you know, I'm, I'm a realist. Um, I certainly have days I'm sure you do too, where, you know, you're just you know trying to get your, your macros in, but really I want you to have food that you chew, you swallow, it hits your stomach. And then your body registers that you've eaten a meal because I think that's significant.
1: So what do you say, and this is not me, so this is not a question for me, but from probably the audience, I love how I speak for the audience, and not here. <laughs> but anyhow, but from the audience, like, okay, the whole push towards plant-based foods, the whole push towards being vegan, how in the world are these folks supposed to get these macros there? I still haven't gotten my head around it. How do they get their macros where they need to be, whether they're intermittent fasting or not?
0: Um, I, 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 have strong opinions about, um, plant-based agendas and, and veganism. I, I respect people that, that want to consume a, a plant-based diet, uh, obviously, but at the detriment to your macros, because most vegetarians have to consume quite a bit of carbohydrate, whether it's lentils, beans, soy, etc., in order to get those protein sources in. And I find they're not satiated, mm-hmm. so they keep eating. So it really wrecks your Um, insulin, your fasting glucose, because I've women track all the time. I'm like, if you can't afford a CGM continuous glucose monitor, then you need a glucometer. Mm -hmm. And when they start tracking their blood sugar, they realize like, I really need to change things up. I can't have this massive, you know, two cups of quinoa is not equivalent to a steak. And so the amino acid profile is very different. Uh, So I I think it can be very challenging. And I, I do have a few ketogenic plant-based people in my sphere that, you know, work with me and they're chronically under-proteined. And, and we talk very openly about it that I I get concerned because they're, they're thin, they're middle-aged women. And, you know, they, they feel a tremendous sense of, of guilt about um, consuming animal-based sources. And so I try to Can we, can we do a little bit of egg? Can we do a little bit of dairy if you tolerate dairy? So I I try very hard. Yeah. Sometimes I I can get get people to eat some fish or some lean, some lean turkey or chicken. So at least they're getting some sources of additional animal-based amino acid profiling. Uh, But that is the challenge. And, and I find for a lot of people, when I really lay it out for them, I'm like, I want what's best for you. I want to respect, you know, your choices that you're making. I just want you to understand, like make a fully educated decision and understanding that, you know, you are not benefit, you know, we know insulin resistance, resistance starts in our muscles, mm-hmm. really emphasizing to people that it's so, so important as we're getting older to make sure we're hitting those protein macros and people get creative. Like I have a lot of vegetarians that start eating eggs and, you know, they'll do a little bit of cheese and then they, you know, maybe they then foray over into like a mild white flaky fish. Yeah. And they'll do that because they realize that there is value in, you know, supplementing their diet with some additional protein options.
1: Yeah. I just came back from a girl's trip and it was fabulous, but the group of women actually eat very little, like no one ate a lot necessarily, but I didn't have access to all the stuff that like, I like, I have to have my 30, 40 gram protein shake in the morning. And I, you know what I mean? I have Mm -hmm. kind of this like little regimen going most of the time. I was telling my husband, I came back and like my belly was hanging, even though collectively Through any given day, I had eaten less, you know? And so it's just interesting that chemistry is very real of sarcopenia and, you know, muscle and insulin relationship and the storage of belly fat and protein and all of this other stuff. All right, we're getting close, but I have to do this like the carbs. So hundred grams of carbs staying under that. Does that allow us to have half a plate of vegetables with every meal? What does that allow And then really, how much damage do we do with that cup of rice, the cookie, the, you know, all of that other business that sneaks in?
0: No, that's a great question. I I think what I suggest to most people is that they carb cycle. And this is another thing I talk about in the book that you have days of lower carbs, and then, you know, maybe one day of discretionary higher carbs along with medium carbs, and that allows better compliance. So let me be clear about that. Um, this is where I think having a glucometer is really helpful Mm -hmm. because I did experiments with an eighth of a cup of rice all the way up to a cup. And my body does not do well with rice, Mm -hmm. even though I'm, I'm thin and fit. Uh, and so I think people need to really do the experiment of N of one, you know, find out for yourself, what and how your body reacts to certain types of carbohydrates, because it may surprise you. Like I don't tolerate plantains and rice, but I can eat tropical fruit. Like there's no tomorrow, which makes zero sense to me, quite honestly. So I think there's a degree of experimentation. I do recommend carb cycling because it helps with compliance. Um, Under hundred grams is really not all that um, challenging. I think once people get used to it, I think what gets challenging is when people try to drop it to seventy-five or fifty, just even right. for experimentation, because there are so many discretionary carbs. Can you have a big salad and still get under hundred grams? Absolutely, but you have to work diligently. I would say the consistent lever is protein, mm-hmm. and then you're deciding is it a is it a higher carb day? So I'm going to increase my discretionary carbs from low glycemic berries. Maybe today you're going to have some sweet potato or root vegetables versus a day when you're lower carbohydrate, and maybe it's the day you push that fat lever. Maybe you're having half an avocado, maybe you're having a little bit more extra virgin olive oil on your, on your salad. So I think it's really a bit of experimentation that I found helps with compliance. And then people look forward to a special celebration. I do think flour, anything that's, whether it's a gluten-free flour, almond flour, regular yeah. wheat flour, um, when you think about how that has been so processed down. It's like mainlining cocaine. I've never tried uh, this. I'm just saying like, yeah. in my mind, it's the same That effect into the bloodstream. You get that instant dopamine hit. That's why it's hard to have just one cookie, right. or one piece of cake. And so I think flour-based products, um, obviously if you can't moderate, you eliminate. That's just my kind of mindset. On my birthday, do I have cake? Absolutely. Do I make it a regular occurrence? Absolutely not, but I do like dark chocolate and I can enjoy dark chocolate. And I can moderate my intake, and so I think that's the the recognition. Like each one of us has our kryptonite, and we need to determine if I can't moderate, I need to eliminate. But I also need to find, you know, my methodology is always good, better, best. So if you can't do, your, pick the best choice, pick the next best choice, but with the understanding that we want to enjoy our lives. I feel like the last two years have really shown to so many of us that there are things we really enjoy in our personal lives, and so I'm not suggesting you not enjoy a party, a celebration. But if you know something's your kryptonite, don't, in, don't indulge, indulge in it and then right. end up having like, it turns into not a cheat meal, but a cheat week. And the next right. thing you know, you feel really poorly.
1: Goodness. I could talk about this for so much longer. This is such great information. I really appreciate it. I hope you guys have a better understanding of maybe how to approach intermittent fasting and what may work and what may not work. And of course, Cynthia, if they want to reach out to you, I know you've got a book. We didn't even talk about your book. Intermittent fasting transformation is the book. What can they learn in the book and what uh, other resources do you have for folks just trying to get more information?
0: Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'd start with the book. So intermittent fasting transformation. I 45 is the first book designed for women. What makes us unique allows us to embrace our physiology and not apologize for it so I talk about the science in a way that's super accessible I talk about ways to strategize utilizing this and then there's a 45-day program along with delicious meal plans that um, I created with Beth Lipton who's an amazing chef Um, you can easiest way to connect with me is off my website. So www.cynthiatherlo.com. I have a great podcast. Um, As you mentioned earlier, everyday wellness podcast, and I'm now actually the co-host of the intermittent Intermittent fasting podcast with Melanie Avalon, but I'm very active on Instagram. I'm a little snarky on Twitter and you will find me. um, There's a private, it's a free private Facebook group called intermittent fasting lifestyle backslash my name. It's a really great community. So if you want to just get to know me better, get to know my team better, that's certainly a great place to start. But all of those things are accessible off of my website.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you for taking time out today. I appreciate it and for everybody else, thank you for listening and watching this episode of Superwoman Wellness. Don't forget to rate and review it and share it with your friends and we will see you guys next time.